Peace. Welcome to a special edition of Bootstraps. I'm your host, Anefriessian. So we are in a we're in a heavy time, um, living through this awakening that was sparked by the murder of George Floyd on the heels of several other murders of black bodies for no good reason and that were either committed by the state or covered up by the state until we the people decided to rise up and change that. And one of the byproducts of this new awakening has been a lot of well-intentioned allies and in particular well-intentioned white allies who are newly aware of the degree and the pervasiveness of violence that black folks face. And one of the byproducts of this newfound awareness and this commitment from white allies to want to make it better has been an outpouring of concern, text messages, emails, phone calls to individual black folks asking, are we okay and what can you do to help? And I think long-term, it's it's way more of a positive with very minimal negatives to it. But in the immediate term, it was somewhat overwhelming for black people because it gave us the responsibility of having to figure out how to have this conversation with you when this has been going on literally forever throughout the history of the United States. And at no point in time did it stop. Murders like this were happening six months ago, a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And so it's created this extra burden of trying to figure out how to answer that question and how to give constructive feedback and guidance because we know that you're reaching out because you want to help and you want to figure out how to be a part of the solution. And so the motivation behind recording this special edition episode was to provide insight into what our walk is like specifically around this issue, provide an in-depth, nuanced conversation around the complexity of systemic racism and how it shows up in the lives of black people. And in particular, from a professional standpoint, what are things that companies and individuals in the professional ranks can do, not just in the immediate, not the hashtag that you can post, not the one-time donation that you can make, but how can you help us in this ongoing fight to change this because it's going to not take six weeks or six months or even six years this is just going to have to be the work to dismantle a system 
that was designed to oppress and break and murder black bodies. And this system was built 400 years ago and it's running off of 400 years of momentum. And so we appreciate the outpouring and the affection. We are optimistic about the future. We are not broken. We are driven to make things better. And for those of you who really want to help be a part of the solution, you know, maybe this episode could be a resource um, for you and your friends. And if you listen to it, you take away something constructive, definitely share this around with other people in your community, especially white people in your community, um, to give them some idea of what it's, what it's like and some ways in which they could be a part of the solution. So, um, as always, thank you for listening to Bootstraps, and let's get into it. Peace, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Boot, Bootstraps. Um, yo, my man, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yo, it's good to be here. Um, I, I'm a huge fan of the show. Uh, it's, 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 uh, it's a treat to be, to be on it. Um, so my name is Ryan Pintado-Vertner. I um, run an organization, I run a company called Smoketown. Uh, what we do is um, support emerging brands, uh, largely in the natural products industry. Uh, we help them uh, reach their full growth potential and, and deliver stronger ROI by uh, really dialing in stronger marketing and uh, sales strategy and execution. Uh, we do outsourcing of marketing talent for uh, companies that are at a stage where they need a uh, senior marketing talent in the room, but they can't quite afford it. We, we provide fractional outsourced marketing leadership. And then we've got um, a, a fully loaded innovation and consumer insights capability that can, can help a company get their, their pipeline to the next level. Okay. I dig it. So I'm going to play back what I heard you provide like, grown-up kind of best-in-class marketing capabilities for organizations that haven't quite gotten to the point to where they can pay to have full-time best-in-class marketing capabilities on their payroll yeah yeah that yeah that's a that's a big part of what we do and then even for companies that have that that internal capability we we supplement uh what they're able to do by you know just bringing in smart capable outside thinking that is grounded in the consumer. So, so the, the space that Smoketown operates in is the consumer packaged goods industry. Uh, we're about building brands. Uh, we're, we're about building brands that matter. And more specifically, when you're building brands, what, what you're really doing is, is creating something that solves a problem for someone. Uh, that's the foundational, you know, that, that's, that's the most fundamental thing that, that, that the consumer brand uh, space is about. And so part of what we do is we bring consumer empathy, consumer insight to really dial in, okay, what is the problem that, that, that our brand or our innovation is trying to solve in a consumer's life? And so right. even if a company has a, a, a full marketing department, they still might need outside support to, to really lean in to that question and, and answer that question well around what the consumer need is. 
Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And we're going to get into this later in terms of like problem solving. And there's some really pressing problems that are going on in our society right now that need solving and empathy and listening will be, you know, a big part of being able to solve those problems. But um, before we, before we get into the state of affairs with, you know, the United States in general, the George Floyd situation that's going on, I mean, the protests that are happening. I mean, I'm sitting here in Oakland right now in my apartment, and I can hear the helicopters, you know, circling. Um, mm-hmm. But we, we, got, we got some time before we get into that. I want to help people understand a little bit better, though, like how you became you. So did you just roll out of bed one day as a, as a consumer and marketing expert, or how did you, you know, develop your bona fides to be the person you are? Yeah, the way I tell the story is, uh, you know, if you had told my mother and father, uh, Russell and Sandra out there, that I was going to be a corporate guy, if you told them that when I was 17, 18, 20, 22, they would have absolutely rejected the idea. Like, there's no way they thought that that's who I was going to wind up being, because I, from a young age, from I, I think as early as... 14 or 15 years old, I have been an activist. I have had a, a, a finely tuned sense of injustice, a finely tuned uh, sense of empathy for why it is that, you know, my middle-class family, what felt like an island in the context of, uh, you know, a, a broader Black community that had uh, far less than we did. Uh, I was attuned to that, and I read, and and I got to an analysis pretty you know, at a pretty young age that, that racism is real, it's structural, uh, or at least, you know, even if I didn't have that language, it's, it's uh, not easy to fix and that I was going to be about the work of fixing it. So the, you know, my entire, just about all of my high school career, my entire college career, uh, and the first seven or so years of my you know, post-undergraduate life I was an activist. I would have been uh, in the streets with the folks who the ho- who the helicopters in Oakland are circling. Like that would have right. been fully what I was about. Uh, and it was not until you know I got to a senior leadership position at a nonprofit and and started to want to have impact at greater scale. And and my family was also growing. And and we started to think about wanting to make a a different move financially. That I, I looked at what else I could do? How could I have impact at greater scale? And it was this interesting, you know, convergence for me uh, that, uh, so at the nonprofit that I worked at, we we decided that we were going to try to increase the amount of money that we made uh, from from selling services. So, you know, most nonprofits, and you know this because you've got a nonprofit background too, most nonprofits uh, generate revenue or the, the, the income that they bring in are, are strictly from donations. And it, it's a, gr- it's a grind to, mm. to, to raise money. And so at the time when I was running a nonprofit, one of the ways to diversify our income streams was to build, um, was to build businesses that we were able to, where we were able to sell our services. And what mm. I found was every time I hired someone, to help us figure out how to do that. They had an MBA. Mm. And so, uh, you know, the light bulb went off, huh, you know what? My mom has an MBA. 
um, maybe all of that stuff she was telling me was not so bad after all, you know. Right. Um, and the the, the it, it all came full circle. I went and got my MBA at UC Berkeley at the Haas School of Business. Uh, was super blessed to get into that to in, to get into that program. It was an incredible program. I think it was top five in the nation at that time. Still still is pretty highly ranked. Um, it, it was you know it was an incredible experience, and that was where. I learned what uh, brand management was. I learned about the consumer packaged goods industry. I realized that my my knack for empathy, my interest in changing people's behavior was actually exactly what the, the world of, of consumer packaged goods is all about. And, and, and one thing led to another. I wound up in, in that career for about 13 years. Awesome. Yeah, it's, it's interesting too. One of the skill sets that comes with having your MBA, you can get dropped into a nebulous situation where there's no clearly defined path, there's no left or right, and you can figure out how to provide structure. It's almost like you can build the parachute on the way down, so to speak, um, mm-hmm. to then be able to solve just about any problem. So um, it's interesting that you being the person you kind of always been, you've been focused on trying to solve just issues in the world and coming from an empathetic place to be, be able to even understand that those issues exist. And then you end up landing, you know, at Berkeley, at Haas to get your MBA and then going into consumer packaged goods. Um, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting path. And so you, you then have moved on from working for established companies. You said you had a 13 year career in that, and that's where you got your chops where you kind of show up now as, this bona fide expert that can solve big problems for your clients who bring you in. Um, how did you land in the natural food space? My intention from about halfway through my, my business school uh, curriculum, you know, I'd say like by the, by the second semester of my first year, I knew I wanted to do brand management and I knew I wanted to do that in the natural products industry. So it was it was plan A, frankly. And you know, the, the story that I always tell is it, it was the you know spring of I think two thousand and six. I had uh, I had an internship at Whole Foods Market. Whole Foods has uh, to this day has a, a corporate headquarters, a regional headquarters in Emeryville, California. So I was I, I had a an internship. At, at Whole Foods Market that I that that's basically spanned my entire second year of business school and in the spring I went to this this trade show called Natural Products Expo West mm-hmm. that is you know imagine walking down a, a the aisle of Whole Foods and instead of there being you know three or four thousand brands to your left and to your right it's the booth with the CEO and the leadership team of that brand. So it's like, it's the who's who of, of the natural products industry in terms of where to be. I printed out a big stack of resumes, right. went to Expo West in, in 06 and tried 40 or 50 different times to get a job. And I and came up with zero. The, the feedback then was Hey, we don't know what to do with someone who has never run a brand before. Because at that time, remember, I'm, I'm 
my career, if you looked at my resume, right. my resume was 100% nonprofit. And then I was going to a fancy business school, but right. there was no, there was no business experience yet. There was no brand management experience yet. So that's what actually took me on that long detour. Therefore, you know, you fast forward to um, 2018 when I started Smoketown, it was not even, I didn't even have to think twice about right. which sector I was going to focus on because my intention, you know, 13 years prior, 14 years prior had been to do the natural products thing all along. Right, right, right. It's funny the way in which career paths kind of unfold. And I think, you know, the one of the, the big thrusts for people out there who are earlier on in your career, I think in the beginning, there should be a real emphasis on developing skills. And once you develop those skills, it gives you a lot of flexibility where you can um, work across different industries, different sectors, but also then gives you leverage where you can then say, I'm going to focus and try and be in this one particular sector um, where for you, you decided to focus on um, natural foods and health products. I think for me, it's, it's, it's a focus on mission driven companies, right? And so after going through my stint and doing, working at a few companies and getting my MBA and then working at a few more companies and really got myself to a place of being considered like a, a marketing expert, I had some leverage and kind of ironic, you know, I, I used to work at a particular winery and I'm so glad that I am not there during this time. You know, it's like, you know, thinking about what's going on in our society and what's happening with um, the George Floyd situation, Ahmaud Arbery, and there's so many other, um, it's kind of sad. I can't even rattle off all the names right now because yeah. some of them are slipping my mind. There's so many uh, black bodies that have been broken and looted um, and murdered by the state, you know, within the past couple of months. And I couldn't imagine having to go into work right now and try and uh, be in that space. I'm really thankful that mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm where I'm at and that the way in which I'm bringing my, my acquired skills and my experience, like I feel good about the problems I'm trying to solve at work and for my, during my day job, um, you know, as opposed to trying to solve it for another organization that may not be consistent with my values. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 It's, you know, it's, there's this, uh, there's a lot of, uh, there's this notion of, of the double burden of being black and being an executive or being black and, you know, fill in the blank. And right. the, the, the double burden of, of being black, especially being a black man and, and, you know, the last, you know, 10 years of American history uh, in particular, and being that and being an executive in, you know, majority white places and spaces is that you are constantly operating and processing things at two different levels, 100% of the time. And it, it's, it's, you know, on the one hand, code switching is a, is a, and it, it goes beyond code switching actually, but like code switching is sort of like, the shorthand for that, right? Like that's right. the most superficial way that that expresses. And that on the one hand, it's, it's beautiful to be, you know, I think of it as a version of being multilingual. Like it's beautiful to be able to move in and out of different spaces and, and do so fluently and fluidly and 
you know, I talk to my kids about that all the time. I've got uh, a 17 year old and a 15 year old and I'm like, Hey, you know, being, being fluid and fluent and fluid in multiple situations is a gift, but it is also exhausting, you know, it is exhausting. And it's even more exhausting in, in, you know, the decade that is shaped so profoundly by, you know, black men like you and I getting killed for no more than anything that you and I have, you know, for, for being in situations that you and I have been in, you know, dozens and dozens of times in our lives. And it could have been either one of us at any point, you know, I, that's the, I think that's the, that's the coldest part of the climate that we're living through where, you know, for so long, people have always made excuses and just, just dismiss. And it's like, it's crazy making like I have, I've actually gotten comfortable with letting relationships just die because at the end of the day, you know, I'm like, there's no way in which you can say that you actually respect me or care about me if you're going to dismiss my firsthand account of something I went through. You weren't there. And, like, there's no way it went the way in which you said it went. You know, I had a situation where, um, you know, I was in a really affluent neighborhood. This was after I graduated from Michigan. And, you know, I don't know, expensive brand-new track jacket that costs more than a little bit. And some nice running shoes, some nice sweats. I mean, I don't, you know, north of $500 of athleisure gear. And I look just like, I look like your typical yuppie on the weekend, um, hanging out um, at a park in this really affluent area and uh, was sitting there. wasn't drinking, wasn't smoking, wasn't, I was just being, the situation can be any more benign. And cop rolled up and rolled up to start a conversation with me and I turned around, he came from behind me, I turned around, my hands were already in the pockets of my track jacket. And I'm like, hey, how you doing, officer? And he just started asking some general questions like, you know, things are fine. You know, we just want to you know, check in and see if everything's all right. I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, what the fuck do you mean everything all right? Like, of course everything's all right. Um, but, you know, I, I responded very calm. Like, yeah, you know, everything's nice. Just sitting here, you know, enjoying the day, talking with my buddy. And he was like, whoa, 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 you're, you're making me nervous with your hands in your pocket. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, so now I'm in this situation yeah. where this agent of the state he hadn't unholstered his gun, but he grabbed his gun. He mm. put his hands on his gun, hadn't unholstered it. And keep in mind, I didn't get aggressive. I wasn't even upset. Yeah. I responded. We were having this cordial conversation. And when he walked up, my hands were already in my pocket. And then all of a sudden, he, he was like now nervous that my hands are in my pocket. And mm-hmm. so without belaboring that story, thankfully it, it, I was able to de-escalate it. You know, I said, hey, I don't have anything in my hands. I don't have anything in my pockets. I'm going to slowly remove my hands from my pocket mm-hmm. and checked with him. I'm looking him right in his eyes. I'm like, are you okay with that? And he was like, yes. Pulled my hands out and I held my hands up and I had to hold a conversation with a cop with my hands up. As a Michigan yeah. MBA, I was already a marketing executive at the time. I was making six figures. By every measure, I had made it, right? Yes. Um, and he just walked up on me con- concerned about what like God knows what I mean the reality is it was my black skin being in a place that he thought it didn't belong mm-hmm. and that could have went any number of ways 
Mm-hmm. Um, and luckily, I was in a good mood and in a happy space, so I didn't, you know, say something to him like, what do you mean? I didn't actually show the righteous indignation I have the right to as an American. And so I'm right. still here alive today. But so many people have been able to just dismiss that reality because they don't ever have to live it. They don't ever have to experience it. Um, and it, it is taxing, you know, walking around knowing that you, you have to be both things at all times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot. And really, um, I wanted to pick your brain. And one of the things I wanted to talk about, what I really want to focus on in, in today's episode is this whole outcry, this awakening of the white majority. Um, you know, in particular, you know, in these well-to-do liberal places, you know, I think the way in which racism has been defined is if you call people the N-word, if you fight a Confederate flag, like, yeah, you're a racist. But all these other people who, white folks in particular, who don't use the N-word, at least not, you know, in public, they don't fly the Confederate flag. They're like, who've also been a part of this group of folks who've denied that these types of stories occurred, right? They, they denied that the cops are pulling guns on, on black folks for no reason. Like, they, they must have did something, or they just ignored mm-hmm. it. Even if they didn't deny it, they've ignored it. Now, all of a sudden, they're, like, wide awake. Like, I don't know what your experience has been this week, but my phone is blowing up left and right. I'm not even talking about my current colleagues. I'm talking about just about anyone I've ever known over any period of time. Like, they're reaching out. And so, for one, have you had a similar experience this week? I have, and it's, it is unparalleled. It's not like this is the first such police killing Uh, it's not like it it, not even by a long shot right and it's the it is it is an unparalleled level of uh of reaction amongst uh yeah white friends colleagues clients co-workers it's definitely something has shifted yeah and what, what do you what do you what do you think is driving that shift i mean i have some ideas about it but i and I know that you wrote uh, a really compelling piece earlier today. I think it's, it's titled um, The Fire Next Time. Um, mm-hmm. What, and if, if anyone's interested in reading it, definitely go to uh, Smoketown. Is Smoketown.com what's your website? It's, smoke, it's Smoketownstrategy.com. Smoketownstrategy.com. Definitely go to the website and check it out. Um, but w- what do you think is, is driving this? this mass awakening, like white people are getting it this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think there's a couple of different things happening it, 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 as with many situations like this, there's not a monolithic uh, reason that folks have come to the response that they have. Uh, I think that there's a group of folks who were already pretty uh, conscious, saw themselves as being in the uh, equity and inclusion fight, and in many cases were and are like sincerely up, up, up to that and doing that work. And in, in, given that they had, had have that commitment, when this happened, they took an extra step in the direction of solidarity and being an ally and just, you know, 
and, and that and that was the spirit from which it came. Um, and, and I think there's a, another group of folks who um, perhaps were caught by surprise with the speed with which the uprising spread across the country and how close it came to communities that previously had no experience, had no prior experience with having uh, that much anger expressed that close to their doorstep. Mm. You know, like we're, we're in a, you know, a suburb, a, a, a well-off suburb of right outside Chicago, and you know, they, they shut down our suburb for the first time, certainly in the four years we've been here, and from what I can tell in talking to our neighbors, for the first time anyone can remember. Like the, 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 the town was shut down to, mm. out of fear that the, uh, the uprising and the unrest was going to spread to Oak Park. And I, I think that when the, when the, the anger is, is burning so hot that it gets that close, I suspect that there's a way in which it's just impossible to put, put any intellectual or emotional distance between what's happened and, and you and, and who you are, because it, it literally almost came to your doorstep or it burned down, you know, your favorite restaurant or your, right. you know, fill in the blank thing got broken into, um, and so, so I think that it got personalized and it got close to a group of folks in a, in a way that's unique. And then one of the things that I wrote about in the, in the, the blog post was I also think that the role that uh, the president plays, has played, mm. probably contributed to the response as well, where you had mm. a group of people who you know, might have in, in the prior reactions or, or rather in, in, in the prior murders of black men been outraged, but didn't necessarily take that next step. When you have the president of the United States, you know, tweeting that he's going to shoot protesters, you know, calling in, you know, threatening to bring in the military and essentially shred, you know, the U.S. Constitution. Um, right. I, I think that that was a tipping point for some folks who, for whom like that, that was the last straw. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I think, I think there's, there's a lot there. I remember that, you know, dreadful night in, you know, 2016 when this cat, you know, won the electoral college um, and was going to be, you know, the next president of the United States. A lot of folks were shocked. And I, I was shocked in, in terms of, I did not think that people were that indecent to where they could elect a person who's wholly indecent. Like, I didn't think that that was capable, but where the, where I wasn't shocked was I was never under the illusion that we were post-racial. And what, what I find interesting and is one of those things where it's like you, you actually hate to be right. So, you know, Trump is elected in 2016. 
But I'm going through my teenage years in born and raised in California, you know, what's considered to be the most liberal, most progressive, most awesome state, you know, in the country. And I'm born and raised here. And I remember going through my high school years and whenever I would date outside my race, I would get just so, I'm not talking about like the looks that you get from black folks, which I would get those too. But the, the looks that you would get on the, the things that would be said by white parents, it's like point blank, like, nah, you can't mm-hmm. be with them. And so I'm like, cool. And then I would play baseball and, um, you know, baseball is not predominantly an African-American sport. And I had a lot of good friends in baseball, but then I had a lot of friends who would actually those, you know, those dumbass questions like, you know, we got to speak for all black people and, or they would get, they would get halfway through a sentence saying something slick about black people. And then they realize that you're there and they're like, Oh shit. And then they try and flip it. And then they would say, you know, you know, but you're different. It's like, man, look, I think what you need to do is to change this topic altogether unless you want to catch these hands because um, I'm not different and you're being racist. But I've never was under illusion about how racist this country still was. I realized that they learned to be politically correct. But, you know, if you come knocking on a dude's door to take his daughter out on a date, like that's when the political correctness kind of goes away. So I was aware that, and where I'm getting to in this long about way, I was aware that a large section of this country was still really, really racist. But I think what people became aware of, which is bringing it back to your point, was when this guy Trump got elected in 2016, people were like, wow. Like, I think white people were not, were not aware of how racist the rest of white society was, mm-hmm. you know, in order to elect this man. And then there's just been this dumpster fire over the past three and a half years of what his presidency has kind of been. And I think it's really opened people's eyes up, white people in particular, to create this backdrop. So then when George Floyd, George Floyd gets ma- murdered, may rest in peace, uh, they see it through that lens. Yeah. Um, I have another variable I think that goes with all the points you made that I think is a part of this. I think it's because we're also living through this pandemic and everybody's sheltering in place. There is no basketball, football, baseball, summer vacation, all the things that normally we do to occupy our time and to divert our Mm -hmm. attention. Everyone's just stuck at home. And we've kind of already watched all the shows we wanted to watch. Like We're moving into, you know, the third month of being sheltered in place. And I think people couldn't distract themselves. So you take it, it hitting close to home. You take it being set in the backdrop of Trump. And then you have no diversions. All you have to do is watch it, hear about it, whether it's on social media or CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, no matter where you look, you're going to hear about it. You're going to see it. So I think all of those things has led to this, this mass awakening, which is, it's somewhat trippy, you know, for me personally to, to see this many people like finally getting what we've been talking about literally through, and you have this great point in your piece, like nothing about this murder is remotely new or unique. The entire history of the United States, murders like this have happened. You want to, you want to, what's your, what's your, can you like help share how you, uh, what you were thinking about that? 
Yeah, yeah, and I would even go further. I I was listening to the the daily um the the New York Times podcast and they had a piece either today or yesterday that that was working through the history of police reform attempts in Minneapolis and it, as i understood it literally this exact same situation a cop arresting a black man knee on his neck chokes him out with the knee on his neck has already happened and it happened within weeks of now the difference between that one and this one is there weren't cameras right Right. it might have been a a little further ago because i think it was under the administration of a prior chief of police Mm. but the point is not only is is this not new and unique broadly literally exactly the same thing Ooh. happened in exactly the same city with exactly the same police department and produced none of the outcomes and the results that we're talking about right now. So, uh, no, this isn't, this isn't new. And the reason that, that it's not new in, at least in my way of thinking about it and my analysis of it is that you know we we've talked about and it's at this point indisputable that racism is a fixture in american society amongst a meaningful portion of of the country and and it's it's insidious in police departments i i don't think there's a lot of people that can successfully argue against that fact at this point right like it's that's clear Uh, however the the force multiplier is that you know racism is is accelerated by multiplied by uh, capitalism as an economic structure and the profit incentive that's built into that mm. that's how we jump from the prejudice stereotyping version of racism that you know has persisted for you know probably a couple of millennia uh, that that that's how we we jump from that to the structural racism that's that that has produced such a profound level of inequity and and institutionalized racism that that can destroy black bodies with impunity that right. the, the 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 jump and the difference between the two is is capitalism and and the reason for that is you know you've got um like the, the, what what I talk about in the piece is that we have in in the the language that the US uses and in the way that we we talk about and think about are you still there yeah I, I got you so you broke up for a second we said the when the language that the US uses yeah yeah so the 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 language that the U.S. uses for uh, to talk about the economy, it's almost as if the economy is is over there, and all of its consequences have nothing to do with it itself. Like the consequences are separate from the economy. So capitalism right. is this force. It's it's almost a person that is making decisions and doing things and creating jobs and. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. 
and the cascading set of consequences associated with some of those decisions are divorced from it. And right. the, the, the reason that, that that assessment fails and the reason that that assessment particularly doesn't hold up when you know, we're, we're trying to make sense of, of the killing of, of George Floyd and why that's so, um, and why that kind of a thing is so commonplace is that the, um, the, there are layers upon layers of consequences associated with the way capitalism operates and what happens when capitalism merges with racism, mm. such that um, you know you have gen- multiple generations of poverty in the same neighborhoods that were in those those very neighborhoods were abandoned by industry and redlined by you know by realtors and and city planners and therefore overpoliced and in fact the police might have allowed drugs to flourish in those neighborhoods at the expense of other neighborhoods. So you have all these layers of decision-making that are supercharged by corporate interests, supercharged by, by the exigencies of capital that, that when combined with the ever-present reality of, 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 of prejudice and racism and, 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 and the like, translate into this phenomenon that is, uh, that is, structural racism that 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 we're now you know spending so much more time and thank i'm glad we're spending more time talking about it but right. but, but the reason we're talking about it is because of those the, the that that confluence of forces yeah and i mean it's, it's one of the one of the basic things is wealth begets wealth right and like the hardest thing to do is to get that first chunk of wealth you know there's the old saying like the first million is the hardest million and what's behind that saying is once you have an asset, if you manage it accordingly, it will just grow with compounding interest year after year after year. So, you know, there's another, oh, listening to you say all this, a few things just like popped in mind and I connected some dots where um, they always say behind, or there's this old saying is like behind every great fortune is a great crime, which goes to that concept of the hardest thing to do is to get that first million if you're trying to like pull yourself up um, and pull yourself up out of poverty but once you get it then it's just going to grow I mean I think the initial great crime this country was the killing off of Native Americans and then the enslavement of Africans and so that created this massive chunk of wealth which then just continues to be passed down generation after generation after generation um, and when you are redlined, you know, we're talking like post-slavery. You go through Jim Crow and then after Jim Crow, there's redlining and you can't buy in the best neighborhoods. And if you somehow scrape together a loan, they're going to give you, you know, the worst rates. You're going to end up underwater in your home many times. Like, it's just really hard to, for Black people to create wealth. And the market was designed and set up in a way in which you make mm-hmm. it hard for Black people to create wealth. And yeah. the market was also then set up and designed to make it easy for white people to be able to create wealth. And now it's just inertia of 400 plus years. And it just wealth begets more wealth and more wealth and more wealth. Right, right. And uh, yeah, like there, and I think like when we, when we talk about that, there's a risk for, for white folks who might be in the audience or, or 
who were even other folks who were trying to process this and you know doubting the the seriousness of what we're saying and maybe it sounds like we're referring to decisions that were made decades ago and you know redlining is no longer true i can i can sort of like hear the chorus of counter arguments i'll i can i'll give like very concrete examples that are that are true right now the there is um there's this notion of being an accredited investor uh, that that is a, a definition that the SEC has that that dictates and determines the kind of person that can make a direct equity investment in a company. So uh, there are there's a, a, a statute, a, a set of regulations that define who is an accredited investor. And the definition is largely wealth based. Mm. You know, do you have you know, do you have assets above a certain amount in value, uh, not including, in, in, important point, not including the home in which you live. <laughs> Do you have, um, uh, you know, was your trailing 12 months or, or last two years average revenue $200,000 or more? Like, don't, don't quote me on those specifics, but I'm not far off. And the point is that the fact that you and I have MBAs from, uh, some of the most reputable institutions in the world um, have run between the two of us multiple hundreds of millions of dollars worth of you know business revenue have created shareholder value have I mean you can run a list of the reasons why the SEC the, the, the SEC should have no point of view on whether or not I can directly invest in a company right I, I'm, I have arrived it's over done like I, I not only can i invest in a company i can build a company and give you the privilege to invest in my company right, right. that that should actually be the structure but it's not uh we we and that's true right now right now and yeah. who does that disproportionately impact you and i who does that disproportionately favor white folks who are more likely to create capital gains based wealth yeah is that an accident a hundred percent no <laughs> right definitely no. not an accident right no i mean there's so many anecdotes that like pop to mind but uh i'll i'll tell uh one because it's short and succinct when when i was an undergrad um my ex's roommate dormate um and i won't i won't say names but um she came from a family that was all right, and they had this tradition of the grandparents paid for the grandkids to go to school. And so it created this mm -hmm. system. So when what they would do is they would start putting money away for their grandchildren. And when these grandkids finally came around, this money had been accumulating compounded interest right. for decades. And she had this trust that, that paid for her tuition, her apartment, her food, everything. And then she's going to graduate debt-free, then inherit this trust and is gone and just start her life with an amazing education and zero debt. And that's, that's wealth. You know, I saw this stat where like the median income in the United States right now of a white person with a high school diploma 
is the same as the median, not income, excuse me, wealth. The median wealth of a white person with a high school diploma is the same as that of a black person with a graduate degree. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If that's not systemic. Not, not surprising. You know, if that's not uh, an example of systemic uh, racism, how it's locked into our economy, then I don't know what is. Right. That's where you get right. to the point where you just don't want to believe it at that point. Right, right. Yeah. And, and the reason that that matters and the reason that that particularly matters right now as we have this heightened level of consciousness and awareness around the, the very real impacts of, of the, 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 this structural racism on, on black lives is that the, the fact of George, like as, as details emerge about who George Floyd was, his income, his wealth, what he struggled with, um, his story is in substantial part going to be the story of what happens when a community suffers divestment, you know, that the, the, the structural consequences of, of, of each of the, of the wealth creating or, or wealth destroying, wealth denying choices that we're describing and the way that they cascade across every aspect of American life. My bet um, is that, that as we learn more about George Floyd and, and what, what, his, what, what preceded his tragic death and, and who he was and how he was in the world, that that more than a few of the choices that you and I are, descri- are describing right now, more, more than a few of those structural impediments to success and, and thriving will be, will be somewhere in his narrative. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, hopping off, not hopping off, but like building upon that point, I think you and I are both wired the same in that we always like to try and figure out solution. And so I don't think that we are able to come up with, like we're not all knowing and don't even pretend to be. But I did get a chance to read through your piece and you had some really strong suggestions about how we can move forward and what it, what it is that we can do. And in particular, you know, one of the things I, I want you know, this podcast to be used for is black folks out here who are listening like, if you're sick of having to, like, answer this question for, you know, these newly woke white folks who are in your life, who are coming to you genuinely concerned, but creating an extra psychological burden for you, because they're like, I didn't know, how can I help? How can I help? You know, I would hope that you would forward this podcast on to them and even tell them to fast forward to this point um, in the podcast mm-hmm. to try and get some insights on what they can do. I think you have some constructive points that I think would be good for people to hear about going forward. If people genuinely want to commit to this at the individual level, but then also a lot of companies are hopping on this bandwagon. You know, Nike's coming out making big comments and Netflix are coming out making big comments. And, yeah. you know, I, I am really proud of the company I work for. We came out and made a really strong statement and put some money behind it. But there's a lot of work that's going to need to be done once the adrenaline rush of you know the past 10 days subsides and so what what advice would you have for folks who are outside the black community who want to actually help solve this structural racism 
problem, what, what would you suggest people do? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the, the, here's the things that I suggested, because like you, I had a lot of, uh, of I think, generally well-intentioned, sincere folks who either were newly woke or were already that and just felt like they wanted to, to sort of do something extra because they're so outraged. And I, I took a step back and and made a list of, of some things that, that I think people can do. And, and this is particularly from the, through the lens of people in their role in the private sector and in the business community. I, I, I didn't, you know, I haven't really tackled the question of how you show up differently as a parent or as a neighbor or as, you know, a, a, a child or, you know, the, 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 the many other hats that we all wear. Uh, yeah. So the, because of this analysis that I have and that you and I have been talking about around the 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 problem, the, the nefarious combo of capitalism and, and racism, one of the things that I think any business leader can do is to be to question decision making practices and policies that are that are rooted exclusively in profit incentive and creating financial value. If if you're not at a company that's operating and thinking in terms of multiple bottom lines, impact on people, impact on environment, in addition mm-hmm. to profit, then the the choices that that company makes that are purely pros- that, that that are purely profit driven are more likely to create and reinforce the structural inequalities and the structural racism that 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 we're that we're trying to dismantle. So that's the first thing. Uh, the the second thing that I talk about is uh, to really scrutinize hiring practices and, and company culture, uh, because mm. part of what goes on is that, and this is true for you and I, I know, is that it's really hard to be uh, Black in America and get a a uh, high paying living wage, middle-class, upper middle-class, stable job. It's harder mm-hmm. for us than it is for other folks. And that's a function of the hiring practices and recruiting practices and, and pay schemes and, 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 and other HR practices that are happening in companies. So that's the second thing that, that I, I talk about. Uh, the, the third is about investing in communities that are uh, that are oppressed and and downtrodden and struggling to to survive so invest actively investing in black communities leveraging um capex expenditures you know where you open your office mm. uh, all of those kinds of decisions are decisions that many people have influence over and rarely is the are, are the needs of the community part of the equation for determining right where and how to make those investment choices there's a lot of great examples of companies out there that you know that that go out of their way to include those kinds of considerations and and where they make investments and and that 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 matters tremendously because again like the the part of the the systemic nature of this of this problem is that you, we have an economic structure that is 
disproportionately hurting a particular set of folks. And that economic structure is not, it, it's not an abstraction. It's a series of meetings with right. real people making real choices based on spreadsheets and consultant recommendations. And like, let me, this is like, it's real life stuff, real human beings working through real data and real facts to arrive at a choice. There's nothing abstract about it. So if, if the you know, folks in the audience work through those three things, uh, reconsidering profit only decision-making criteria, um, scrutinizing hiring practices and company culture and proactively intentionally investing in, in black communities and other economically devastated communities, then, and, and to your point earlier, if we keep doing that for the next 30 years, Right. Then maybe what would that be? So 30 years from now, I'm probably going to be a grandfather. So then my (laughs) grandkids will actually have a shot at growing up in a context and in a situation that that doesn't seem like 2020 on repeat. Right. That's real. I mean, basically put your money where your mouth is. I think one of the things that is that has happened, we can kind of go pre George Floyd and hopefully becomes post-George Floyd where behaviors remain consistent because when you become aware, you have to act. And I think sometimes when we would start to see the implication, like I've been in a room sometimes at different companies that I work for where we start to see the implications of the data and then we change the topic because it's like, whoa, I don't really want to look at the fact that this is really, huh, this is going to appear as if it's racist or it's going to appear as, as if it's fill in a blank. Um, I was once having a conversation about trying to work on diversity and inclusion and get uh, different people into the pipeline um, for a different organization I was working with a, a while ago. And I was like, well, if you really want to get people into the pipeline, like where are the most desirable like DNI folks, like, do you want it to be the upper middle class black kids who never actually had to deal with going to like bad public schools and have to scratch claw to get in? They went to boarding schools. They went to an Ivy League undergrad. You know, everyone in their parents' network was some senior executive, and now, you know, they're trying to figure out how to get themselves into an elite NBA program. Like, is that DNI? Is that the ideal person? Or mm-hmm. is it, you know, this really smart kid who went to class, grew up in classes where it's 35, 40 kids that may or may not have enough books. It's a really rough environment. Kid was smart as hell, worked his butt off, and then eventually found himself in a place to where, like, they have all of what it takes. And they've even gotten the grades. They have the experience. But they're still not plugged into the networks where they know like they don't know someone who can pick up the phone and introduce them to whomever it may be at fill in the blank elite institution. Mm-hmm. Is that truly doing DNI work? And to me, with my biases and my lived experience, like I think we need to be helping those, you know, those proverbial roses that grew through the concrete, the way Tupac put it. Folks who grew up broke and struggling, not they didn't have anything. We need to give mm-hmm. them a shot. We need to find go out our way to find them and 
when I posed that question, I, and I was like, it wasn't even an either or. I was like, we need to figure out how to get access to both of these groups. Um, people recognized the implication and the work that was involved, and they didn't, point blank, didn't want to do it. Mm. And so, um, mm-hmm. would you call that person racist? You know, it's like, right. And I think that's how racism gets to perpetuate itself, though, mm-hmm. is in those subtle decisions where the N word isn't used, right? Where the Confederate flag is not flown. Like, people vote Democratic, people donate to different causes. But when you start talking about these choices, like we have a place to put a factory in city X or city Y mm-hmm. or neighborhood X and neighborhood Y, where are you going to put it? When you look at your hiring practices and you look around and your, your company is lacking in fill in the blank. If clearly the system that is operating within your company is it's, marginalizing whatever group it may be. It could be women, it could be Latinos, it could be LGBTQT, but it's definitely black folks too, right? And so if you look Mm -hmm. around and you see that there are no black people in your organization or very few, then you have to make a concerted effort. You just can't hope that it changes. Mm -hmm. You have to make concerted decisions to kind of move the organization in the direction that you're going in. So um, Mm -hmm. I, I agree with all that you said. The only thing that I would really add is from a personal standpoint for individuals who are listening that are not institutions. I think the, the filter needs to, needs to switch slightly in that this is not a black problem. This is an American problem. Black people didn't create this racism and this in their own systemic subjugation. Right. And so right. when you see this happening to black people, you need to care just as much as if it happened to someone else, you know, that was Latino or just being blunt. If it was, if it was a white person and this happened, mm-hmm. you know, if it happened in East Oakland, you can't just be like, oh, well, it happened in East Oakland. You need to care just as much if it happened in East Oakland as if it happened in Berkeley, in the Berkeley Hills yeah. or whatever it may be. Um, because if you don't care just as much, like, what does that say? Because I, I just mm-hmm. remember when the Amy Cooper thing happened, ironically, unfortunately, it was tragically ironic. It happened the same day as the George Floyd murder. And when that situation happened in Central Park, the number of comments while that video was going viral, where they were focused on how she was treating the dog, which I thought was horrible. And I'm glad she lost her dog. But I just thought that it was ironic that people were so triggered about how she was treating the dog when she just threatened to have the state come murder. This, she lied in order to threaten to have the state come murder this black man. Right. Like, there's, there's a tweaking that needs to happen where you're as hurt and as outraged when black bodies are murdered and looted as black folks are just Mm -hmm. as you would be if it was happening to a white person Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. because at at that moment then we're all united as one people Mm -hmm. and because this i mean it's easy to the to oppress and marginalize the most vulnerable in the society we have the least wealth we have the least power we have the least connections we can't really do anything isolate not we can't do anything 
it's harder for us to do anything when you have us isolated. But when everybody joins in and cares, which is what we've seen, the beautiful thing we've seen in all these protests and what we've seen in all this outpouring from our colleagues who want to figure out what can they do. It's like, you, you got to just keep caring. You can't get bored. You can't go back to ignoring that these problems exist. And you got to mobilize, you know, and, and, and it's not about protesting. It's about giving time, money, energy to address the root causes of these problems. Hold your elected officials accountable. If you're at work, hold, you know, the senior leadership accountable for like, what is the constitution of our board? I saw this thing on social media the other, uh, the other day. It's like all these companies that came out with these big lofty statements. It's like, I dare you to put, put, a, put all your board of directors up on the screen. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. And so we, we got we to care moving forward mm-hmm. beyond just the adrenaline rush of the, of the now. Yeah. Yeah, this yeah. is a sustained fight. You know, this, this, is, this is not a flash in the pan uh, thing. And if part of me is, is, is still a bit skeptical, it's that piece of it. It, it's, you know, I've been an activist since I was 15 years old. Right. I know how long this takes. I know how hard it is. There, there are things that, that I and, and you know, the folks who I, I've, I worked alongside were working on in 98, 99 that are just now coming to fruition. Right. So this is, this is a long struggle. And unfortunately... America's uh, not wired for sustained attention that, that, like that, that, that skill of, yeah. you know, being able to be a critical thinker and sustain critical thinking over long periods of time and track progress and, you know, and continue debate and continue to push and continue to struggle. We've been losing that. Um, that that's been, that's been eroded bit by bit you know, with the onslaught of technology and media fragmentation, and we can get into a whole other conversation about that. But, you know, when you, if, if there's part of me that's, that's still a bit pessimistic, it's because, man, I know how hard this is going to be to really shift. And I'm, 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 I'm worried that, you know, we're one scandal away, you know, a, a one unrelated scandal away from the, right. the, the media lights shifting in another direction and and we we lose this momentum yeah yeah so i mean that that becomes that becomes a challenge for us all is to um stay committed to doing the work and um you know i'm i'm want to pray that uh we all can do that because i know i'm committed to doing that work you've committed to doing that work um and those of you who I don't know, who may listen to this, who have been, you know, reaching out to black people, honestly asking, what can you do to help? You know, this is it. Like, don't get distracted. Um, right. Sign up, for the, sign up for the long haul. And those of you who have asked me specifically or in my life personally, I say the same thing to you. Do not, do not get distracted. Like, this is, this is work that needs to be done. You know, the, the crazy how time passes, the... I'm 43 years old, and so the the L.A. Uh, uprising in in '92 after the Rodney King verdict that happened just after my 15th birthday. It was about a, was about a week, and so I was a yeah. fully 
I was psychologically, I was, I was fully formed. Like I remember everything about, I remember everything about it. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's crazy to be back here at this moment, you know, 28 years later. Um, Yeah. And and folks are are like, Oh, I, now I get it, but go ahead. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, sorry to interrupt, but, but the the reason that I'm so, it's funny you say that because, the reason that I'm so present with the fact that I've been an activist since I'm since I was 15 is that my first act as as a as an activist was to organize a, a kind of a rally slash um, slash school um, school event in response to the Rodney King verdict. Yep. That that was my first act. I had started this, you know, black student union at my high school. Uh, the Rodney King thing jumped off, and and I organized an assembly. That was that was my first real act of organizing and doing something other than just thinking about stuff in my head. And the, the, you know, I have a, I have a 15 year old son now, and and so it's just to consider how long it's been, and 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 in many ways how little has changed is is on the one hand disheartening but but on the other hand look there's 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 more you and i are having this conversation because something shifted people people got it in a way that they had not gotten it with the dozen or so other you know incidences like this that have happened in the last few years and so let's let's pray and push and act to, to try to maintain this momentum as, as best we can. Uh, man. Amen. I'll, 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 I'll leave it there. Actually, no, I'm going to add one, one quick anecdote, you know, going back to the very beginning of this story, um, Ryan and I have known each other really well for a long time. We actually, um, we, we, we rightfully say we grew up together. We, we met in our early twenties and we basically learned how to be men um, alongside each other and absolutely as uh, really close friends. And I remember when you first made the choice to go to business school, I remember where we were, we were driving down high street in East Oakland and you said, I want to go sit on the other end of the table. I mm-hmm. want, and you were referring to being on the nonprofit side where you're asking people for checks and you said you want to figure out how to go get on the other end of the table to where you're making decisions and you're either, if you're working for someone else, you're able to deploy the capital or if you own your own company like you do now, you're actually able to write checks yourself. And these same decisions that you're talking about making, you know, if, what communities do you invest in? What are your hiring practices? Um, those thinking about having multiple bottom lines, those choices, they happen when you are sitting on the other side of the table where you're, you're running the business or you're in charge of the business's resources. And you shared that with me. We're driving down high street in East Oakland and it it burned in my brain. And I ended up uh, (laughs) jumping out of nonprofit as well and and going down a very similar path for the same reasons because we, we wanted to be able to do the same things. So, to yeah. me, I think it's very symbolic after all these years. Yeah. Because I don't even know if you remember that conversation. I just I do remember. remember. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that we're, we're sitting here today. So 
I appreciate you so much and taking the time to uh, do this work and having done this work since you were 15 and continuing to do this work because no matter what we may think, no matter what diplomas we may be able to put on our wall, um, we are never separated from our people. We're all in this and we still live under the yoke of systemic oppression and racism. So thank thank you for doing that work. Yeah, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me and and congrats on, on uh, building such a, such a terrific podcast. I appreciate it, brother. Talk to you soon. Mm -hmm. Peace.